Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that remains and is relevant so many years later. Lord, help us to see your purposes and your plans. Help us to see those culminating in your son Jesus and help us to be a people that gets comfortable waiting, uh, even when it's hard to wait, in light of your control and your sovereignty and your goodness towards us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things I want to do is, is set up the, the story of Joseph, because we're kind of transitioning from Jacob to Joseph now. And I want to I set it up this way. I want to set it up by saying that the Bible isn't meant to be just a bunch of different stories strung together to teach us moral lessons. It's not the, the main way the Bible is put together. In other words, the main thing to get from today is not, you know, don't throw your brothers in pits. Right, though that's a good thing, right? It, and we do learn moral lessons along the way because we see God's goodness and we see evil and we see what, what comes from it, but that's not the main way it's put together. Uh, there's moral lessons along the way, but the Bible, and the way I want us to think about the Bible is God telling one story of his plan to bring his people to his place to enjoy his presence. One story, one plan with these different episodes along the way. So as we move from Jacob to Joseph, that's why I want you to think of it as the next step, the next progression, the next episode in this big story. And the reason that's so important is because if that's true, I don't need to work to make this story relevant for you. I don't need to do something catchy or try to bring in some turn to make it relevant for you because if this is the same story of a God working to save his people, bring them to himself, then that's the same story happening today. This story is actually our story. This story is actually our heritage. It's the story of the world. And our prayer here at South City's Church is that if you walk into this room, it's your story that you get caught up in this story of redemption, the story of God saving a people. And one of the themes that we've seen over and over again in Genesis is that God always keeps his promises. That's what we've called this series, meeting the God who keeps his promises. And for that to be true, what also has to be true is that God never loses control. He never loses control, not for a second, not for an hour, not for a day, not for a week. He's he's always in control. And in this episode with Joseph, he's going to be abused. He's going to be abandoned. He's going to be accused. And at the end of this chapter, where we'll find him is simply waiting. (laughs) There's no resolution at the end of this chapter, simply left to wait. And if we were to look at lots of his life, From a natural perspective, it would look like God has lost control of this situation. Where is he? (laughs) Isn't he going to do something? Look at all this injustice. But God hasn't. So I want to frame this whole story of Joseph by reading two verses from his own mouth towards the very people that did evil to him that set up how we're supposed to view all of his story and all of God's 
purposes. So first, listen to Genesis 45, 5, as Joseph comforts his brothers who have done all this evil to him. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. When was the last time that was your heart's reaction? You've had evil done to you, people have attacked you, and you've said, hey, let me, let me comfort you with the sovereignty of God in my life so you don't have to bear all that burden anymore, right? That's just not our natural reaction, right? That's certainly not the world we live in, right? The world we live in is outrage, anger, revenge. You should feel bad. Or Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, this is the really famous one, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So who does Joseph say sent him to preserve life? God, right, God. What the others did was sinful, but God hadn't lost control. God used it to save many people, like many, many people from dying in a famine and save his own people from extinction in the famine. In other words, as we've read Genesis, we've seen over and over again all these trials, all these barriers to the promised offspring coming, all these barrenness and enemies and pharaohs and kings. Now there's a a famine. And God's people would have died in this famine. No offspring coming. But here again is God working. He doesn't participate in the evil, but all of it is under his sovereign plan and good purposes. Brokenness doesn't have the final word and all circumstances will ultimately work for the good of God's people. And because it's all one story, the story of Joseph, as you're reading, is meant to get you ready for the story of Jesus. It's meant to like prime your heart to see types and themes that get you ready for the story of Jesus. Jacob is a a type. That means he's a a foreshadowing meant to teach us about what's to come in Jesus. That when Jesus comes, we go, oh, we've seen that before, except this is so much better. (laughs) We've seen that before, except this is what our hearts were longing for most. And like Joseph, Jesus would suffer at the hands of others close to him. But God was not out of his control. God was working in Jesus for the good of his people through his suffering, obedient son, working for our good, working for this story, for this reason that we're gathered here again today. So we need to read this story with God's complete control in view. And we need to read the story of our own lives and our own world with God's complete control in view. And here's what I mean. If we're still in the same story and God is still in control, that means God is still keeping his promises to get his people to his place to enjoy his presence, which means that if you're someone that's prone to look at the world around you, that is calling good what God calls evil and you are filled with anxiety and worry and wonder if you need to run away or go somewhere else, you can take a breath and just trust him. He hasn't lost control. Evil's gonna be everywhere you are and God's gonna be everywhere you are. You can take a breath and trust him. If you're struggling with sin and suffering in your own life and it's, it's taking its toll, you can know there's purpose and God still has you in his hand and is working in you and through you for good if you've trusted in Jesus. And so as we 
march into the story of Joseph. We're marching into it with God, completely in control, God's sovereign goodness working towards him with an eye towards another obedient son who God's goodness and sovereignty is working towards to save a people and bring them to himself, all right? So that's what we're gonna try to look at as we see this. So first, chapter 36, it's one of the chapters that you probably spend the most time in, in your devotionals, right? It's one of these long genealogies. You probably have all the names memorized. But in chapter 36, we have a marker in the book of Genesis. So you see the phrase there in, in verse one, these are the generations, and we've seen that phrase throughout the book of Genesis to just mark big transitions in redemption history from one thing to the next. And Esau, in this family line, we're reminded of all that he is as it kind of culminates in this family line. So Esau lived for momentary pleasure. You remember the episode with his birthright. You remember his anger towards his brother. Right? He was filled with hate, and ultimately, he distanced himself from God's people and God's promises. And we see this in chapter 36. It's kind of a, a sad story of a sad decline where we can see how small sins in the beginning, not checked, they go bigger and bigger and they get contagious, even among a whole people. So Esau marries Canaanite women in verse two, and that's significant because eventually what happens is that he becomes completely assimilated with their traditions and their gods and their life, and he walks away from his God. And we can see as this storyline goes on that it's a big group of people that prospers and is eventually known by the name Edom in the rest of the Bible. It points that out in verse eight. And in verse 19, this people is eventually known as Edom, so keep that in mind. And it's a people that's rich in possessions and power. They've got a bunch of kings listed in the last section of the genealogy, but they're poor in their distance in their relationship with the living God. And so even at the end of the story where we see some positive things, right? We see Jacob and Esau get along. Seems like there's even some reconciliation. We see them come together to bury their father. So we don't know, even commentators are split. I'm split personally, and where's Esau at? At the end of his life, I'm not sure. But that initial despising and distancing that led to other gods eventually defines all of Esau's descendants. That's what we know for sure. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you can go to many of the Old Testament books and you can see Edom as in direct opposition against Israel over and over again so that they become kind of a foil to God's people. It's like, who is against Israel? It's gonna be Babylon and Edom, right? They're always kind of there all the time. And that story climaxes in the New Testament when an Edomite king, a king in the line of Esau named Herod, hears that another king has been born, right? He hears and he gets jealous, he wants to have control. He's been born somewhere, so what does he do? He, he kills all the children at a certain age in the region. Here is, is Edom still trying to extinguish Israel in this horrible act, but God is in control and has Jesus escape to Egypt to avoid death so that he can later die a different kind of death to save his people. And so in this line, we're setting up a people without God, a people opposing God with all of God's people who are in his promises. And we're, we're seeing a picture of sin that grows and grows and grows until it affects a people. 
So kids, I don't know if you've ever thought this way, but I've thought this way. Maybe you thought that disobeying God just a little bit wasn't that big of a deal at the time because you really wanted something. And it's not that big of a deal. It's just a little compromise. I can just give in a little bit here. And I'm guessing Esau probably had that kind of thought too. But here we are 30, 35 years later and his whole family is away from God and doesn't have God's promises now. And so what does that mean for us today? For kids and for adults, right? It means trust God, trust his promises. Stay close to him. And if you're not trusting him or you're far from him right now, then today is the best day to confess your sins. Today is the best day to say you're sorry and he will forgive you and be near to you and all of his promises will be for you. It's the good news of the gospel. The line of Esau is meant to show people far from God and how God, despite that, will ultimately work to save his people through his promises in a chosen son. Jesus ultimately has victory over the Edomite king and saves his people. The Old Testament writers, the whole Bible writes in a way that that they want you to see that. We're not used to that kind of big arcing storyline in our Western culture, but it's here and it's meant to be a rhythm that repeats in your heart as you read the Bible. There's always opposition, there's always trials, there's always sin, and God is always in control and God always wins. Point number two, as we move on from Esau's family line, that's not a good one, we move to another family line. that's also seen some very ugly moments in Jacob as well. So in chapter 37, Jacob's in Canaan, we see that in verse one. And in verses one to 11, we're gonna see some dreams that are very offensive to his family. But before we get to those dreams, we get some context. In verse two, we find out that Jacob's son Joseph, which is the oldest born in his other marriage to Rachel, Born to his favorite wife, Rachel, is shepherding the flocks. He's 17 years old, and he's with some of his brothers from other wives. So here he is in this mixed family with them, and it says he brings a bad report about them to his dad. And I think this is meant to, in the story, bring a a foreshadowing of the relationship to come, right? As you watch a movie that you really like, and you watch some hairy interactions at the beginning of a movie, you see some brokenness and some cracks, you start to anticipate, right? This this is not going to end well. It's going to go bad. And that's what we're trying to see here. Joseph seems to be bringing a report of some of the ugly behavior of his brothers, which is not hard to believe, as we'll soon see them in action, (laughs) some of that ugly behavior. In verse three, we see all the, the ugliness of past sin come into play. It says very clearly, Joseph is Jacob's favorite. And Jacob has been playing favorite since he took two wives, hasn't he? Right? He, he loved Rachel and he didn't care much for Leah. And guess who he learned this pattern from? His dad. <laughs> this was their family history. You remember Isaac favoring Esau and Rebekah favoring Jacob and all the mess that caused in their family. So they're just repeating the same sins. And here it is again. And in verse three, we said because of that favoritism, because of that line of favoritism, Jacob gives Joseph a coat of many colors. Now it could be that this is simply, simply a fancy and fun coat that makes it fun for future musicals. Right, that, that could be it. But the more that I've looked at it, 
the more I think this was meant to be bigger than that, symbolic of something else. I think this was meant to be a coat signifying that Joseph would be the one to receive his father's great blessing. He was marking him off. Here's the one, here's my wealth, right on him, right on display. He's the one that's gonna get all of it. Reuben, his actual oldest, had forfeited his blessing by sleeping with his father's concubine. That's why that little detail is back in chapter 35, so that when this happened, it's like, oh yeah, Reuben can't have it, so now here he's chosen Joseph. So Jacob will give it to his oldest son from his other favorite marriage, which is still a backwards way to do it, but it looks like he's gonna do it. And in verse four, it says that when his brothers saw their father's favoritism of Joseph, They couldn't even speak peacefully with Joseph because of their hate towards him. The amount of time that the word hate is used in here is meant to show us they really hated him. They really hated him. They couldn't even keep family peace. They couldn't eat meals together peacefully. They couldn't be in any situation together peacefully, right? Like all of us can fake it for a little bit. Right, you've done that at a family gathering. You're like, you've kept the peace, you've kept the walls up, you haven't talked about that, you haven't gone there, right? Let's just, we're, just, we're not gonna talk about the coat, right? We're not gonna talk, right? But he can't do it, they can't do it. Their hate is boiling in them. And so these dreams that he's about to tell them are just like pouring gasoline on a fire that has already started to burn, a fire of jealousy and hatred. And as we get to the dreams, The dreams are alarmingly simple. They're not complex. The the reasonings are pretty clear. Not like later dreams that Joseph is going to interpret that you're like, how did you get that? These are pretty simple. In one of them, the first one in verses five to seven, there are some crops being gathered by him and his brothers and all the bundles that they gather bow down to his bundle. That's not a hard message to get, right? It's pretty clear. And they get the point. In verse eight, they say this to him. Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? And we've seen this theme again throughout Genesis. Brothers filled with jealousy. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. The theme of jealousy and covetousness appears over and over again as a gentle warning and reminder to us. Trust God. Be content with his order, with his way of doing things. Find your identity in him and not in comparison or who gets what because this is the kind of seed that when it grows turns ugly. And if you want to know how the brothers responded to this dream, the Bible doesn't make you guess. At the beginning of the dream and at the end of the dream, it says this. They hated him even more. And then later, they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. His dreams and his words. They hate him for the dreams themselves. (laughs) They hate that he had these dreams. It's not like he could control them, but they just hate that he had these dreams. Why do they hate it? I think because deep inside, they likely know there's some truth here. This seems to be the way it's going. That's where jealousy and hate comes from. They see the favor. I think they likely see his moral behavior and the way his father loves him for that and his trust in God, and they go, we're not like him. It makes them despise him because that's 
reality. This dream is actually their reality. Now, Joseph didn't ask for these dreams. Right? They simply came. I think God gave him these dreams to give him hope to cling to as he went through many trials later in life. Even in Acts 2, it says, God will make young men have visions and old men dream dreams in the age that we live in. And while this isn't the most normal way God communicates, it's surely a way that he does, tested by his word. And surely these dreams accord with how things unfold later. So God gives him these dreams to keep him hoping and trusting him for you. Remember what I revealed to you when you were 17. But his brothers hate him for his dreams, just that he had them, (laughs) and his words. Even if he had them, and even if deep down they knew it might be true, they don't like that he told them about them. (laughs) Right? If If you've ever been a parent or around a family or around multiple siblings, like this just happens all the time, right? Even if it's true, why did you say that? Right? Why, did, why did you say that? Why did you go there? You knew that would make them mad. What are you doing? What are you thinking? Right? This is not a, a surprise. We don't know why he did it. Um, we don't have any clues here. I just don't think we have clues that he was some spoiled, rotten kid. We just don't see that. If we see bad character in anyone, we, we see it in these brothers. Maybe he's just naive youthful speaking without a ton of thought. Maybe there is some pride in there. We don't know for sure, but they don't like it. And right when they're starting to get over their increased hatred of his first dream, he comes back and says, like Alan, or like Bill read, lo, (laughs) hey, I'm back. Part two of my dreams, right? And what does he say? He dreams of 11 stars. This time he adds the sun and the moon. And they're bowing down to him. Again, a pretty clear message. His, his father questions him with some indignance. This one probably really sticks in his brother's hearts because not only now is it them bowing down, but it's the sun, which is probably representative of their father, and the moon, which is probably representative of their mother, who's not his mother, <laughs> because his mother died on the way here. So there's all this family hatred boiling and building And they are indignant and jealous. But his father, interesting, it says, kept this saying in his mind. Another way to think about it is pondered it in his heart. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember where else we hear that? His father is pondering this saying in his heart like Mary would ponder in her heart the amazing things said about Jesus. Something rings true, and it makes him hold on to it. Like, I don't really like the idea of me bowing down to him. But man, something about it makes me think, maybe. Maybe I should keep that in my mind. I should keep thinking about that. So we've got two young boys in Joseph and Jesus with big things prophesied. We've got two obedient sons who please their father, and the scene is set. God has spoken in dreams. Joseph has wisely or foolishly communicated those dreams very clearly to his family. Jealousy and hate has grown. And in all these things, God is completely in control and working to eventually save these hateful brothers through the very one that they despise, just like another future savior. So you're going to say, why did Jacob ultimately have these dreams and ultimately tell his brothers these dreams? Because God was working for their good, (laughs) despite their hatred and their jealousy. So 
Next point here, verse point number three, disgust that overflows. The scene is set. You can imagine what's coming. Apparently, uh, Jacob and Joseph couldn't quite imagine what, co- what was coming. Somehow this hatred must have been somewhere under the surface because he sends Joseph all alone to meet his brothers. So in verses 12 to 14, we found out that the brothers go to pasture their flocks near Shechem. Now you all remember what Shechem is, where, what's just happened in Shechem, this massive slaughter. So you can imagine with their recent history there that it makes Jacob a little bit nervous that the brothers are pasturing flocks there. And so he sends Joseph to check on them and bring back a report. How are they doing? Are they okay there in Shechem? And Joseph gets there and he can't find them, but a man finds him. He's got this chance encounter, this providential encounter, which we've seen over and over again in Genesis. Oh, there's just a person here. There's just a person here. It's all under God's control. And this man points him to where his brothers are. They've moved on even further to Dothan. And Shechem was probably 40, 50 miles away. Dothan, another 15 or 20. So this is a long journey. This isn't like run out across the street and check on your brothers. This isn't like go a couple blocks down and check on your brothers. This is like pack your bags, bring your food. You're going for about a week to go check on your brothers. And in verse 18, it says they saw him coming from afar. How did they see him coming? Why do you think they saw him coming? How did they know it was him? He's got a really bright coat on, right? No one else is wearing coats like that, ironically. And they conspire to kill him. So many parallels uh, with Jesus in this story that that the Bible's trying to prime our hearts to see, right? Joseph comes to his own, and his own do not receive him, but conspire to kill him just like Jesus. And the, the jealousy and the hate and disgust overflows into a murder plot now. Again, sin doesn't stay small, it grows. It's a loving, good reminder for us. Something small like some anger or bitterness you store up in your heart, some some lust that you allow to live in your heart, whatever that small thing is that you're kind of fostering and keeping in your heart, it will always want to grow and act out. It never wants to stay the same. Sin is not tame. It can't just be a pet that you keep on the side. And that's what's happening with these brothers now. They're ready to act. We see in verse 19 that Joseph has a new nickname among them. They call him the dreamer, and they have it all planned out, right? We're going to kill him. We're going to throw him into a pit. We're going to tell our dad he was eaten by an animal and let his dreams die with him. And remember, Jacob is far from home with no protection. He's a sitting duck as his brothers conspire against him. But then here, as we're growing used to, and as we should just grow used to in our lives, we get a glimmer of repentance and redemption and rescue, so Reuben, who has not done good things very recently, right? Reuben, who's the, the firstborn who lost his inheritance and would have most reason to want Joseph dead, steps in here in verse 21, it says, to rescue him. To rescue him. And then verse 22, it says, let us not take his life, shed no blood, just throw him in a pit. And verse 22 reveals to us that he said this so he could come back later and rescue him and bring him back to his dad. So something is happening in Reuben's heart for good. God is using him and using this change to save Joseph and accomplish his purposes. For some reason... Reuben's words at least stem the tide for the moment 
and they listen to him. And so when Joseph shows up, they strip him down, they leave him to die in a pit, and we find out later that Joseph, while in there, was crying to them for mercy, but they wouldn't listen. So you imagine him now, he showed up in a pit, stripped naked, left for dead, crying to his brothers for mercy, and what are they doing? They're eating. Their God is their belly, right? Their glory and their shame with mindset on earthly things. They're, they're callous. And while they eat, without Reuben there, Reuben's gone off somewhere else, they see a caravan of traders headed to Egypt. And in the midst of Joseph crying out to them, they get an idea to make some money off the deal. Judah doesn't want blood on his hands. He doesn't want more evidence to cover up. And there's no profit in this for them right now. So he has this idea, why not just sell Joseph into slavery? It'll be so much better, guys, right? The evidence will be covered up. We don't have to do that. We'll make a little money, right? Win-win, right? So much easier than what we were planning to do. Later on, interestingly, Judah will give himself up to be a slave in place of his younger brother in another moment of redemption in this ugly story. But not today. Today, Judah's after his own gain. Like Jesus, Joseph is betrayed and sold for some silver pieces by those closest to him. Like Jesus, Joseph escapes death by being sent to Egypt. And like Jesus, Joseph is raised out of a pit so that he can live again to save his people. Just all over this story. And so as Joseph is being taken away, we get the last eight verses of this chapter. What happens is Reuben comes back Finds the pit empty. Here's what's happening in verse 30. He's beside himself, thinking that Joseph is gone forever in his dreams with him. And they all, thinking that they just sold their brother into lifelong slavery, decide, well, I guess we do still have to cover it up. And so what they do is they kill a goat, they cover his robe in the blood of that goat, and they bring it to their father. And Jacob identifies it and assumes an animal has gotten his beloved son and mourns. We just keep seeing this deception, right? People bringing other people's clothes, wearing other people's clothes, despising and deceiving those closest to them to just get their way, to get what they want in the moment, and it just keeps happening. And Jacob will not be comforted and says he just wants to join his lost son in Sheol. And the last verse of the chapter finds Joseph sold to Potiphar, the captain of the guard in Egypt. Joseph has had to make a long journey, gone to his own. His own did not receive him, but rejected him, mocked him, watched him suffer, and sold him for silver. Now he's there just waiting. And so as we read the story, and the amazing thing in Joseph's story is that so many times in his life, he's left to just kind of wait it out. Just kind of sit there. Uh, and how did he do that? Like, how would you do that? Like, if there's this ugly bitterness aimed at you, right? Or false accusation aimed at you. Or just vengeful, vicious people coming after you. Like, what's your gut reaction in that moment, right? How would you process? How would you make it? How would you not want to run from God? How would you not want to give up? And Acts 7, verses 9 to 10 helps us with a phrase that we've just seen over and over again in Genesis. Acts 7 verses 9 to 10 says this. 
And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor in wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. How did he endure the trials? Because God was with him. And so a lot of me, when I got to this point in the sermon, wanted to just kind of bring all the emotional angst to a happy ending. (laughs) Talk about where it's all going. But I feel like that's not what Genesis does here. Genesis actually is another chapter next week that Pastor Daniel's going to preach that doesn't even talk about our story. So we just have Joseph hanging out as a slave for a chapter with really no mention of him. And so that's, that's how I want to end today. And then by saying this, what do we do? What do we do as we look at the world around us and the sin inside of us and the suffering that keeps coming and the, the circumstances that try to overwhelm us? What do we do in seasons where it feels like we've lost control? What do we do? What do we do when we're waiting? Man, the, the list of things that, that Bill prayed for those who are waiting, like you can all find yourself in that story, waiting on a, a job transition, waiting on a prodigal child, waiting on suffering to get better, waiting on that situation to change, waiting on the salvation of that friend, right? Waiting, just we're just always waiting. Like this is the life of waiting. So what do we do? And I think the answer, uh, and the place I want to leave us, rather than trying to resolve it all, is just say, we look to the Lord, <laughs> remember his promises, remember it's all under his sovereign control, and we remember God works for those who wait for him. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord, and we wait. We wait. And sometimes, the reason I don't want to resolve it is because it's not resolved for some of you. Like, like the waiting isn't over. You're, you're in the waiting. So I could just tell you, right, all the true things, and they are all true, right? New heavens and new earth coming. Amen. Right? Jesus is for you, not against you. Amen. The Spirit's in you. Amen. And that's how you're going to make it. But right now, you're just going to wait. <laughs> it's going to wait. That's why we need each other to, to wait together, to remind each other of, of all that's true, to, to sit, right, like Job's friends did in his waiting and just be quiet and <laughs> just wait with each other. And so that's what I want to do here as we come to communion is I want you, wherever the hardest waiting is right now, wherever the the biggest transition in your life is coming, wherever the most discontentment is, wherever the the frustration is, wherever that thing is hard that you don't want to talk about, wherever the, the pain is most real, wherever the waiting is, this is a moment now where you just need to come to Jesus and say, I, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> or we sang a song last week, right? He's already won. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. <laughs> right? I don't know what you're doing. We're going to sing that he, he works for our good. <laughs> right? We're going to sing, we're going to wait on you because we've tasted your goodness. We trust in your promise. And so right now is a moment for you to dislike, lament in the waiting and rejoice in the waiting all at once and say, Lord, I don't know I don't know what you're doing. I don't know when it's going to end. I don't know how to calm my heart. I don't know how to leave my anxiety. I don't know where to go with this. But I know how the story ends, and I know who you are. So confess your angst. Confess your worry. Confess your brokenness. Confess your fear. Confess all of that to a big God who never loses control, who has sent his son to die for you, and who is going to work for your good until he gets you home. So let me pray.
pray. So Lord, we're gonna come now and we're gonna eat and drink with you. What an amazing thing that you want to fellowship with your people. That you're with us, you're for us, that you're not against us. And Lord, we, we just would confess right now that we don't always know, we don't always know how to parse out all the struggles and circumstances of our lives. We don't always know how to make the turn <laughs> that happens in so many of the Psalms where we're in angst and then we end in joy. Lord, sometimes it's like Psalm 88 for us where the, the sorrows are just there and we're just still waiting and still hard to see. But Lord, by your spirit, you've helped us know, <laughs> helped us know that Jesus came and lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose again to conquer death. He gave us his spirit to, to keep us, to keep our eyes trusting in his big plan of salvation, to bring his people to his place, to enjoy his presence now and forever. And so Lord, we wait, we lay down our burdens, we confess our anxieties and our fears, or we even confess our, our sins that, that make the waiting harder, that entrap us in our own pride and our own idolatry. No, we confess it all. We bring it all to you, Lord, and we ask you now for this people in this moment, in this place, Lord, work for our good because of Jesus. Meet us in our waiting because of Jesus. Hold us fast because of Jesus. Work in our waiting. Renew our strength in the waiting. Work for our good because of Jesus. I pray this in his name. Amen.